Welcome, everybody. You're listening to the Women in AV Wavecast, brought to you by Rave Pubs Radio and sponsored by Atlas Sound. You can learn about their company by visiting www.atlassound.com, where they engineer it right, build it right, sell it right, and support it right. As well, we are sponsored by Hypersign, and they're providing digital signage needs and solutions for the AV industry. So visit them at www.hypersign.com. And to hear this and all the other Rave Pub Radio podcasts, visit www.ravepubsradio.com. Well, welcome everybody. Um, I'm so excited today to have two very special guests with us, and this is just going to be a really fantastic podcast, uh, something that we don't get a chance to talk about too much. We have with us Kevin Sandler, who is the CEO of Exhibit One. Kevin, welcome. Thank you. Great. And we had Fadad Sebastian, who is the CEO of Media Vision USA. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you both for being here. Something that, you know, is really exciting to me and uh, very near and dear to my heart is what you all do and what your companies do for our AV industry. You know, Kevin, you are a systems integrator. Uh, Fadad, you are a manufacturer. But one of the really unique things that you both do is that you work um, primarily, your market is the government. And you do do sort of some, um, I think, Fadad, your solutions are incorporated there in, in education, but one of the things that you both do is you work a lot with government clients, putting in AV solutions, the manufacturing and the, the products that go into that. And so I'm just really excited to, to hear about what you guys do, the markets that you serve, and, and um, t- tell us about the products and services that you provide. Fardad, why don't you go ahead and start first? Sure. My company, uh, Media Vision, we're a provider of conferencing microphones delicate type microphones, voting, and language interpretation. We uh, provide diplomacy technology that help diplomats, politicians, board members, CEOs to communicate efficiently, uh, vote on various resolutions, and even speak their own native language in a, in a multilingual meeting. That's fantastic. I mean, and one of your customers who your products are actually in is is the United Nations. Is that correct? That's correct. We have customers from a small town hall with five council members all the way to a 900-seat conference room at the United Nations. Uh, We have provided our solutions for the White House communications, FDA, DEA, wherever the people meet and discuss various topics. And um, one of the things that's unique about your products versus maybe some of the more traditional AV systems that we've seen go into these spaces that really provides a great solution is that you're sort of a turnkey solution. You can customize your the products that really meet the requirements, like you said, ver- whether it's a small town that needs something simple or all the way up to, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you can do fingerprint recognition so that the person that's actually sitting down has to sign in with a fingerprint to be able to actually communicate. Is that is that right? Absolutely. Uh, we have uh, biometric readers, pin code, IC card, chip card reader as method of uh, identification for people to be able to use our system sitting in a conference room. So various ways to enable security for a meeting. That's great. And Kevin, tell us about Exhibit One and what you do. 
Well, Exhibit One Corporation designs, engineers, integrates, and supports telepresence and presentation technologies, primarily in the government space, although we've got a growing part of our business that's on the, on the corporate side as, as the corporate side of things seems to re be recovering from, uh, from the Great Recession quicker than the government does. Simply put, that means that we provide technologies that allow people to see something better, to hear something better and to be able to project their message, to be able to speak it better, so to speak. In our world, we primarily focus on the nation's court systems, from the federal government all the way down to municipal courts. And in a typical environment, we're designing and integrating systems that allow a, a courtroom to be equipped in such a way that those presenting attorneys typically uh, can show evidence, can play evidence, we are providing technologies that are digitally recording those uh, proceedings rather than the 20th century version, which was the stenographer off to the side. It's now being replaced by digital technologies. We provide audio and video conferencing capabilities so that if you want to do things like remote witness testimony, that remote witness can either appear via video or audio, saving the court and everybody up a, a bunch of money and time. Uh, aside from court systems, we focus on emergency operations centers. We've done quite a bit of work for the United States Navy, for Judge Advocate General Corps. We've done a very, very large multi-year deployment for the Department of Justice's Executive Office of Immigration Review. These are 300 hearing rooms that, around the country that are literally quite scattered everywhere. They're deportation hearing rooms. And we worked with Avaya Government Solutions to design and deploy recording systems in those 300 rooms. So we've got experience from small single traffic court all the way up to extremely large buildings to nationwide deployments at the Department of Justice level. That's really fantastic. And tell me about how your company came to be. When One of the things, knowing that, you know, I oversee the California judicial branch, it's, it's interesting to me to see just from that sort of court perspective how the courts have really started to embrace technology over the last three to four years, but it was not an easy sell, nor has it been an easy sell, historically speaking. What was the sea change that you started to see? We joke a little bit in presentations and teachings that I do that it was around the O.J. Simpson trial when Judge <laughs> Ito kept saying, you know, it was the first broadcast one. But tell us what your experience with the history of how, um, not just uh, the courts, but have you seen a change in how government agencies have started to embrace technology? Absolutely. Uh, I'll start. So I'll start with the courts first because that's our, our greatest experience. And with tongue partially in cheek, I would say I'd like to think that Exhibit One had something to do with precipitating those things. We've been in business 16 years, and when I started this company, just as a as a quick aside, I have a sister company called InData Corporation. InData authors litigation support software. And this is back in the in the early to mid 90s. They were developing tools that attorneys could go into courts but they were going into the court and finding a television in the corner. And that was it. Mm -hmm. And so back then, there was a, a, a marked lack of understanding of the need for the technology coming from the courts. Then we had to overcome, once we got their attention with the fact that they needed this, they had no budget. So it was really a slow groundswell. The federal government awakened to the need for this in earnest probably... Oh, I'd say about 15 years ago. Uh, in fact, I, I wrote a federal contract for 10 years deploying this all over, the, all over the country because they finally awakened to the fact that they could increase the utilization of their courtrooms if they put some things in place that allowed them to, let's say, make a case go quicker. 
uh, one of the things that we used to talk about when we were trying to explain to a court administrator or a judge or somebody holding the purse strings of why this is valuable is to say to them for the following example. Uh, you brought up the OJ, the OJ trial, uh, and, and let's just say it's that, that glove. In the old world, with no technology, when that glove comes up, it's in a bag, and by right, every single one of those jurors can hold that bag and look at it. So if you consider if that was to occur, by the time 12 jurors, or heaven forbid 16 if they've got four alternates, are looking at this glove, it's an hour later, or heaven may half an hour later. New technology, that glove puts, gets put on a document camera and pops up on everybody's screen, everybody looks at it at the same time. So we, we were educating the judiciary about case throughput. And so again, I, I certainly I'm not claiming the fact that we changed the world, but uh, us and those like us who are pushing this kinds of technology really got governments at all levels to wake up. It started at the federal level, trickled down to the state, and now we're seeing it more at the municipal level as well. Oh, that's great. And and do you do you think the same thing, Fardad? Or, I mean, what what is your experience in that area? Well, uh, definitely, uh, we see a lot of uh, appreciation of technology these days. Uh, whether there is a justification in cost saving and also efficiency in time, uh, avoiding travel, avoiding bringing resources to a location. We introduced a product for remote participation called Attend last year, and this is a remote participation with language interpretation. So bringing, uh, let's uh, if you want to stay within the court uh, application, bringing witnesses or uh, even any resources to the court via a phone while speaking their own native language and having interpreters dial in that uh, enables two, three hour court session with a consecutive interpretation and make it a simultaneous interpretation in almost half the time and travel costs. And I would absolutely echo that. Um, probably one rare place that Fardad and I might meet each other in the road is we developed and patented uh, what we call a virtual court interpretation system, or VSIS. It, it, what it allows is the interpreter to actually see what's going on in the, case, in the court as well. And for that, I assume you have the same technology. That is an example of a pain point that Fardad brings up that I echo where it wasn't necessarily you could do it easier it's, hey, you're, you're suffering some, from some pain for this. And the example here in Phoenix is we live in a, in a very far-flung county. Maricopa County is, would probably swallow up a couple of eastern seaboard states. And what that means is, is that our superior court system is also equally far-flung. There are courts that are two, two-and-a-half driving hours from the central courts complex. And it used to be that the interpreter would get in the car and drive to Yuma, or excuse me, to Gila Bend, that is, and that's, there's your two-hour drive. They'd get there, and the case was continued. And they'd get in their car and drive back. So arguably, um, they were completely useless that day in terms of productivity. Now with things that Fardad's talking about and things that, uh, that we're talking about is that interpreter never leaves their office now in the central courts complex. And they tune in to the Gila Bend courtroom number five and provide their interpretation services being able to see and hear what's going on in that, in that case. 
Another pain threshold that kind of precipitated things is the uh, DOJ uh, immigration project that I mentioned earlier. Those are deportation hearing rooms that we equipped. What was happening prior to the technology going there is that I got an education about how, how one gets deported from the country, not from the inside, but just from the outside looking in. But basically, if you are... Uh, apprehended in Racine, Wisconsin, and you are, you are not authorized to be here, and you are deported, basically you are told you have 30 days to vacate the country. And in the old system, they would just go underground and surface elsewhere because all these silos and all these immigration courts were not communicating with one another. The, the court record that was being captured would take months to get back to a central place. So when that person violated their, their order to, to leave the country in 30 days and got apprehended in Spokane, nobody knew he'd already been through the system once. Right. So there's a pain point that technology in the terms of grabbing digital recordings of proceedings and then that night they get uploaded to the DOJ central server resolved a huge problem that before the technology existed they didn't know what to do about it. And that's speaking from sort of my experience and, and what you both provide to help me facilitate my job and, and helping my customers and clients. Everything that I've heard you guys say is around the point that you provide solutions to problems. And a lot of times, you're not just providing solutions to problems, you're providing solutions to problems that people don't even know that they have. And let alone that they wouldn't know that there is a technology out there that can help them improve all of the ways that they operate so that they can be more efficient, especially in this economy and, and in this climate. So I think it's really interesting that uh, one of you is a systems integrator who you know deals, Kevin, deals day-to-day -day probably more with the customers and clients, and Fidad, you are a, a manufacturer. So, um, um, let's start with you, Fadad. Can you tell me sort of, you know, what would be a relationship between a manufacturer or systems integrator um, in this sense? And what value do you add to the whole kind of long spread project process? Well, we see our integration partners as our partner through the whole process, uh, learning about the needs, requirements, and also learning about the process. We learned that we need to be very patient and also design our systems uh, in a flexible way that once it's actually in the hands of the user and there are needs for slight modification on how they run their meetings, how they operate, we need to be able to adopt the technology. What we learned is that no matter how fancy and advanced our technologies are, we cannot change the way people run their meetings. I'm going to give you an example here. For a small town hall that they do uh, voting, they use our microphone and you know uh, conferencing system with built-in voting buttons. And what they like is a very transparent way of publishing the vote result during every council meeting and also after that right on the website. So we know that we need to have this feature available. On the other end, there is a resolution that is going on the vote in a security council uh, at the United Nations to vote on something about, about Egypt or Syria. 
and that has to be a secret vote. So with mouse clicks on our software, we can really uh, simply achieve that. Of course, working with our partners and them being our uh, eyes and ears, we learn this from them and knowing that, okay, the same integration company is working in a town hall, in a courtroom, as well as in a corporate uh, environment. And the meetings are, which, which meetings are more relaxed and less formal. So how our technology is going to adopt to those various meeting environments. What I would like to add here is encouraging government agencies that it is very critical for them to reach out to technology consultants to be able to walk them, walk with them through the design, implementation, choosing the right vendor and technology while they're working on a new project. And you, you have a lot of experience with those types of consultants, correct? And, and you can, so you see a great difference between the agencies that do and don't do that? Absolutely. It may seem to be more expensive to go first and hire a consultant, but at the same time, it is avoiding all the expenses at the end of the project or towards through the process of the project of spending money on fixing the design and not having an independent opinion about the technology. I can completely understand what you're saying with that. You might think that you're saving this amount of money up front, but once you get to the place where things actually start to get installed and it's like, well, that's not what I wanted. Well, that's not, you know, what I thought. And then you get into the place where, you know, you're not getting qualified vendors and that's where you start to get yourself in trouble with towards the end of construction with lawsuits. So you end up, like you said, paying a lot more in the end for not setting the expectations and really understanding um, what the design outcomes and intentions are absolutely oh that's perfect and what about you kevin well it's it's for dad started to explain it um from from our perspective the relationship between a manufacturer like his firm and an integrator like our firm is in the government space we look for a firm like his to evangelize our products to have blazed a trail to have explain to whatever government entity we're combining and and and, and talking to about why their product is valuable to them why their particular brand name is important so that when we go in and we're design in the design stage of systems and let's say we include Fardad's product in our design the goal of him blazing the trail is that when we put in the design and talk about the product they don't look at us like what huh not only what do you need that for but who are those people so it's successful evangelistic activities in that space uh, is, is very very important to us What's also important to us to dovetail on Fardad's comment is we our successful vendor relationships come when we're designing a system. And, and to his point, it doesn't do exactly what they want it to do. We love the opportunity to work with a vendor and say, hey, you know, we're hearing this from the end user community. We didn't just hear this once, we heard this 10 times. And it's important for us, for, for firms like Fardads, to say, okay, we get it. This isn't necessarily a one-off, or if it is a one-off, we'll still engage. But we're hearing enough from this that this will be in our next feature set. So those relationships between integrators and manufacturers, frankly, are extremely critical to the end-user community. 
Absolutely. I, I agree, especially from somebody like myself that knows that in here in the state of California, it's the whole entire East Coast somewhat. So we have 58 counties. And as much as my job is to toe the line when we build new courthouses, trying to develop them towards standards, every single individual county and local court has their own way of doing things. So that type of flexibility and as well as the knowledge on both of yours part to be able to understand that and accommodate that is really at the end of the day, the difference between a successful solution and okay, well, it works, but it doesn't work the way that we want it to. Let's kind of change gears just real quickly. And one of the things that I have seen looking towards the future and some of the challenges, we've talked about some of the examples of things and, and how we've brought technology into the room. But one of the things that struck me recently, and I would imagine for both of you, you look at it with a different perspective than maybe some of the general public, but with something that happened in the George Zimmerman trial. And for um, those that are listening that don't know what happened, during the George Zimmerman trial, which was a, a highly publicized broadcast every day out of Florida, which their court system is, is incredibly advanced technologically, they had um, an occasion where they had a remote witness. And so this is pretty much what our jobs from the AV industry perspective is making available. One of the things that they did was that they used Skype. And what happened was in this case, they used Skype, but the broadcast cameras that were broadcasting it on TV actually broadcast this user's name and <laughs> information. <Sorry>. So, yeah. <laughs> so needless to say, um, this person started getting spammed incessantly with all of these different users wanting to accept them during the middle of a court proceeding that was actually broadcast across the country. So, I mean, I think, Kevin, I mean, that was exactly my reaction, you know, so it was and it was exactly my reaction to say they had to cancel it. They, the judge was just got very upset, clearly understanding this is a court proceeding. This is people's lives are on the line. So they had to abandon that. But the, one of the things that I think is really important, and I really like to hear your perspective on how we can sort of make sure that these types of things don't happen in the future was the reality of that situation, all that it was end user operator error. That remote witness, all that they needed to do was when they got into that Skype session, was there's a setting where you can say, do not disturb. So even if that person's name, unfortunately, had been broadcast as a user, if he had gone through the process and there was operationally set up, that type of interference wouldn't have happened. On the other hand, you can imagine that any judicial officer that was even contemplating or was considering as critical as these proceedings are that saw something like that would be very adverse to actually moving forward because they would not want something like that to happen. They would think that the technology has failed and they would think that, that it was just, no, not in my court. I mean, what do you think um, about that? What are, what are some of the ways that we as an industry can really look to address that and overcome that so it doesn't happen? Can I, for that, are you okay if I comment? Uh, go ahead. A, a couple of comments, and sorry for this golf, Jennifer. Oh, but yeah. No. A, a couple of things is that it is our belief, uh, and if I'm stepping on anybody's toes out there, I apologize up front. It is our belief. You don't use something like Skype for this. What, what we're doing right now for Skype is great, but to place a critical court proceeding in a, in a, in a, in effectively in a public internet environment and all the things that can happen up to and including bandwidth just crashing down. 
because uh, you're going through the public internet. We do not like to see those kinds of things utilized, at least at their current state of technology, in, in a courtroom. It, there's a situation where we talk about putting telepresence technologies in place. We would have, in that scenario, a traditional video conferencing system and let's say that that uh, witness uh, and this happens all the time at the state level witness goes down to the local kinkos and they got a video conferencing node there now it's a single point to point you may or may not have quality of service issues you may you, it depends but at least you're point to point because the other thing that's happening is we're assuming you said that this was the end users responsibility all they had to do was this or that that's a huge assumption what we do is what we try to do is, forgive me, is idiot proof what's going on. So those things cannot happen. Because if they can, if it's possible, I can assure you they will, and they will always happen at the most inopportune time, hence your description of the Zimmerman trial. Another interesting example of that uh, was a, maybe a little under a year ago. Um, uh, the AV systems down at Gitmo, there was a trial going on and there was something inadvertently sent out of the courtroom and the judge slammed the door and we got contacted about coming down and taking a look at how the system could have allowed that to happen as it turns out they went off and did something else but that is how critical the ability in that case the judge had a kill switch and he just reached over and hit the kill switch unless those things are contemplated and, and, and the ramifications of not doing correctly are contemplated, you end up with a George Zimmerman trial problem. Right. No, I absolutely agree. Fadad? Well, this, this is definitely, it, this, this drives home the very important message that ultimately you do what you get, uh, what you pay for. Uh, <laughs> yes. If you continue to rely on consumer-grade products to perform in a professional environment, we, of course, will continue to suffer the consequences. And uh, by the way, Jennifer, I just changed my Skype to do not disturb as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I must re-amplify I must Fardad's comments. It is, it is amazing. It happens less, but it is amazing when people want you to either go cheap or go consumer in this environment. And most of the time you can back them down simply by, you know, perhaps in an ominous way describing the ramifications of their decisions. Sometimes you lose. And in every single case you lose, something untoward happens later if it's simply a failure because the gear's not robust enough or wasn't designed right. But Farad's comment should overarch everything that we're saying right now. Right. Oh, no. And, you know, it, it's a very difficult situation because I, I completely agree. It's, you know, I use the George Zimmerman case. It's kind of twofold for me. I can use that on the one hand, and I know that there were a lot of manufacturers right after it happened. I completely support that this is exactly the thing that I want to bring to my judicial officers when they ask me, why can't I just use Skype? You know, why can't I just have a 65-inch flat panel for a jury that's over 25 feet away? It works in my house. I can get, buy it at Best Buy. So I can make all of those cases because of exactly what we're saying here, why you need professional-grade installation and, and quality. On the other hand, I mean, do you not see that it's a bit of a challenge that for us to overcome because immediately when something like that happens, and it's not just in a, in a court case, I see this all the time if it's a corporate boardroom or if it's something like that. I mean, we've, we've talked about different things where it was 
end user or it was an operator that actually did something, but the immediate conclusion that people jump to is the technology's broken. I mean, that's the easy, most critical place that they could go to is this stuff just doesn't work. When in reality, it really is has nothing to do with the technology in some regards as much as it has to do with the types of things that people are doing. How do we overcome that education perception that we have? Well, you look at the Zimmerman trial as a double-edged sword, uh, and I think Ferdad might agree. On one hand, it's a poster child right. for what happens. On the other hand is what you just pointed out. People that have not been educated or don't choose to pay attention will take a broad brush over all the technologies. Because Skype barfed, we might come in with a more robust technology, but now we have to overcome the fact that they think everything sucks in that environment. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's nice to be able to fall back and use the Zimmerman trial as a, as a pointer and, again, as a poster child, but it, 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 it created as equal amount of damage as it did our ability to use it as a, as a way to undo the damage, if that, doesn't, if that makes sense to you. Oh, absolutely. D um, do, you, do you have anything further on that, Faradad? No, no. It's, uh, uh, to me, uh, Skype, I'm, I'm, I'm a big uh, Skype user. But uh, for me, wearing my jeans every day versus wearing my tuxedo, if I want to do something serious, I count on uh, reliable and serious technology. So I don't use Skype for meetings that I need to be basically uh, failure is not an option. Right. So, you know, one last question about uh, the government, and then I just want to ask one question about the women in AV. I don't want to keep you too long. You know, it's often been said, and being in the government, I can share the pain of many people, some of the challenges and hassle that comes with actually doing business with the government that might not necessarily, you wouldn't see or have to, you know, process as part of the private industry. Uh, you both have been incredibly successful in this market share, and it's a rare thing. Huge congratulations to both of you. You know, what do you attribute the your ability to succeed in an environment where most people find it either too cumbersome, they are not able to do it and be successful, or they just don't even pursue it? Why don't you start, Kevin? From our perspective, doing business with the government, and, and I say government with my fingers forming quotes, from the federal government all the way down. So much of that is simply understanding the process. It's, it's, it's draconian to be sure, but it is generally a process that, that doesn't, it's not like a moving target. So once you get your hands around how, a GSA contract, for example, we, we, just, we, were, we just renewed our, our GSA contract after 10 years. And it was not a fun thing because the whole process had changed from when we did it 10 years ago until now. But again, if you just can, if you if you've got the mindset to to dig in and say, from the surface, this looks like total insanity. There's no way I want to do this. But in our case, a GSA schedule was absolutely critical for our success in doing business with the government. So we simply said, as Fardad said, failure is not an option. We'll figure out how to do that. Now that said, it is very different from a rules and regulations perspective from the private sector. You there there is very little gray in, 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 in the government, where in the private sector it kind of tends to be a bit more of a partnership when you're Im implementing things. It is a harsh and unforgiving environment. It is one that if you, if you dabble, you will fail, and the only way you will be successful is to just commit 
and do all the things you need to do from getting the education to creating the relationships to getting those contracts in place to understanding, for example, federal procurement guidelines. Those kinds of things are, are all critical, not to mention gearing your company to doing things yesterday. Because with tongue-in-cheek, I say the government sometimes has the habit of hurry up and wait. If anybody out there has been in the military like I have, they'll understand that. And then it's hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. Now we want it done yesterday. And we find that happens mm, a bit more. There's a, there's a uh, you know, I would say significant uh, more instances of it happening in the public sector than in the private sector. In the private sector, it's, it's, it's generally easier to get around those things in the, in the public sector because there's so many pieces involved. It, it can be difficult. But again, as you point out, we've been successful. I have, I have competitors across the country that have been successful. But it simply comes, you either, you cannot dabble. You are in with both feet or don't bother. Oh, very good point. What about you, Fadad? Well, I think Kevin pointed out many key factors here. As far as point of view of a manufacturer and a technology developer, we would say it's all about educating the decision makers within the government. As we know, government is not very loyal to vendors when it comes to price differences. <laughs> so if, if you have provided excellent service for years to an, to an agency and there is a company who just pops out and offers something 5% less expensive, you would lose that contract if the requirement and the specification and the RFP is not comprehensive enough to differentiate a class A company from others. So our, our job is to basically uh, educate the decision makers, raising the bar, raising the standards of the quality and the product and the features that they're looking for and working with them to make sure that RFPs are not generic. They're either written by consultants or by people who know the technology. Um, so I would say, yes, it's a very complex process. It's a painful process to do business with government, but there is a tremendous opportunity once you invest time and resources. First of all, they pay their bills. So if you have a project, uh, the budget is there. Uh, the other thing is that needs are there, you know, uh, projects are there. You guys, I feel really bad, guys, because oh, I, could, <laughs> I could appreciate everything that you say. <laughs> Jennifer, do you want to say uh, I'm from the government and I'm here to help? Yeah, right. No, I, I want to uh, amplify just a couple things that Fardad said. One is margins are not wonderful. Uh, and when you do business with the government, generally you want to go for volume because, because of what he stated about the best price. There's two ways the government is, decides to buy something, best price and best value. What he described was best value. And as an integrator, we're always trying to position the designs and the things that we do for the government as a best value and hope that they make, when they put out a contract, they have to make that decision up front. Is this best price so the guy that's a penny less wins or is this best value? Because what happens is with best price, there's a story about Alan Shepard, the astronaut in the early 60s, sitting in his space capsule they're getting ready to press the button on a gazillion pounds of TNT to hurl him into space, and he's realizing that thing was built by the lowest bidder. Yeah. And what we see happening is there are 
there are there's, there's a, a group of folks that those of us that are skilled at what we do call ankle biters or trunk slammers. These are folks that will compete with price, but they're wholly unqualified to actually do the work they're being asked to do. And the danger becomes when that government entity has issued a best price contract. And, and as a taxpayer, believe me, we are not well served in that situation at all. So we are always trying behind the scenes to influence the decision to at least make it best value. Then the skills and, and experiences that a firm like Exhibit One uh, or, or those like us bring to the party uh, can be considered. Uh, in the case of Fardad's equipment, same thing. Um, you know, his, his equipment is likely vastly superior than the ankle biter that just appeared on the screen, um, on the scene that is, but unless he and his team are successful getting the purchasers to consider best value, both of us lose every time. That is something that's very difficult in the government because often mm, a path of least resistance, I want to be careful for those that are out there listening, a path of least resistance is often best price. Oh, yeah. And, and contractually. Well, contractually, we ourselves have gone through a complete rewrite of our contract laws and across the state and how we have to put together our criteria. And, you know, I think what's interesting is everything that you all have said, I do have a unique position in our industry being both an owner and client, but working for the government, but I also have a significant background in AV. So everything that you said, I, I understand, and that's that's a very significant experience that happens all the time when it's the lowest price. It's never about what's going to be the best solution. It's about how much do I have in my budget, et cetera, et cetera. One of the interesting things that I've experienced myself over the last six or seven years I've been doing construction is everything that you said about what people need to consider and have to commit to in the process from our integrators, manufacturers, are also things that I have to heavily manage and oversee in my construction projects on behalf of the courts. It's the, is anybody reviewing the vendor submittals to make sure that they're meeting the technical specification qualifications? Because my general contractor is going out for lowest bid. It's so interesting how the same types of challenges that you experience in a particular environment working with the government, I'm turning around now and actually seeing and having the same types of challenges to make sure that you get that manu that qualified manufacturer versus that guy that's just come in fired at and, and underbid you by a dollar and actually holding the general contractor and the electrical sub up to what the standards should be. So it's, it's, it's quite an interesting process. Leslie, I just wanted to, first of all, say thank you so much. Both of you have been one of the biggest supporters of our organization, the Women in AV. That's the group that we started and um, I founded in 2011 to help us support and encourage and inspire. And you both have continued to tremendously support us, encourage us, be our sponsors, and make sure that we have everything that we need to, to help advance women and to get more women involved. First and foremost, especially at Infocom 13, Kevin, you sponsored our reception and we were busting out of the room. It was just so heavily and popularly attended. And then for our dad, you provided all of our signage and everything. And we had, and I still to this day rave about it. If anybody's ever been to a trade show, and some people really get into this where it's a big, huge contest about what type of trade show ribbons that they can have. Well, yeah. our dad supported uh, us and the women in AV actually having our own. And I can tell you that it was the slickest and awesomest badge ribbon that I have ever seen. So I just want to first of all say thank you to you both. <laughs> sure. 
And then uh, the question that I that I have is, here we are, we're still less than 20%. Our group has just done amazing things and grown exponentially. But what do you think as an industry we need to do in order to encourage more women to want to be involved in and come join us in our career? Go, go ahead, Kevin. <laughs> and, and I, and I kind of had mentioned this to you early in, a, in an earlier conversation, um, Jennifer, is that I'm going to answer your question in a backhanded way. Um, extracurricularly, I mentor um, women-owned small businesses. I do that through the Greater Phoenix Chamber. Um, and I've been doing that for years uh, because you know, simply I was blessed with a set of business skills. And I decided I wanted to impart those and along came this program. So past handful of years, I've thoroughly enjoyed doing that. And when you asked in one of your questions that you sent in, in the preparation for this podcast, what what we do to, uh, to, to, to further that, my response to you is, I don't treat men and women any differently in my organization. So in other words, I don't, I don't single out anybody based on their gender for an opportunity or not an opportunity. I'm always looking for the best person. So I guess in a backhanded sort of way, I'm presenting an equal playing field where perhaps others at the country may not be so quick to do so. And then from the business perspective, although I've not mentored a, a women-owned AV business, I probably would hesitate to do that and put a competitor in place, um, you know, certainly providing the, the, the mentorship that other, some of these other small businesses may ultimately feed into WAVE somehow, although I don't know how it would. What about you, Fedad? Well, I would say we are in the business of AV and communication, and basically that's how the world talks to each other. And half of those people are women. And we definitely want to have the women's perspective in whatever we do as far as developing a technology, developing a sales campaign, the customer service guideline, and to be able to address the majority of the community or our clientele. Uh, well, it's not that I personally believe that women are better than men or vice versa. I believe that we need the perspective of women in every aspect of our business, and especially when we want to bring a new technology or service into the market. Uh-huh. So we want, we want our products to be developed in a way to appeal as many people as possible despite of their gender. And uh, well, I found women in AV pretty successful in increasing awareness amongst women to, 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 to be more involved in, in our industry, which, of course, we, our industry is one of the, uh, the kind of a technology industry that there are less women, and uh, we, need, we need more, more women to, have a, a, to be able to address a wider wider uh, spectrum. Um, both really great points of view and like I said it's for those of us women that are here we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of both of you and the men in our industry. I can honestly say the men in our industry have always been incredibly encouraging and supportive for those of us that are here so again we just we really appreciate it and we appreciate that all that you do for us. We're glad to be here. I, I, I assume I speak for Fardat as well. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. 
Great. Great. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I mean, this has been so wholly educational and informative to all of our listeners out there. I really can't think of any other time when two experts such as yourself that are so successful and, you know, have really been leading our industry in this market that they've had the opportunity to listen to someone like yourselves and really get that feedback. So I just, I myself want to say thank you very much. It's been a really great time talking with you. Kevin, if people want to get in touch with you and find out more about your company, what you do and how to find out more, where should they go? Well, uh, if you want to just contact me personally uh, at my email address at Exhibit One, which is K Sandler, K S A N D L E R, at Exhibit One, is the word exhibit and the word one stuck together, like exhibitone.com. And you can also reach me at 480 763 1002. My direct extension is 111. And that's the best way to reach me. And what's your company's website? www.exhibitone.com. Dot com Again, with O-N-E, not the numeral one. Great. And how about you, Fadad? Well, uh, we are uh, uh, scattered uh, throughout the country. So if uh, you're interested to see any of our products, you can come to our San Francisco office, New York, or Washington, D.C. And electronically, you can always visit our website, mediavisionusa.com. We'd be happy to respond to your questions and our Toll-free number is 877-746-4605. Well, perfect. Thank you, gentlemen, again, so very much. You know, I would absolutely encourage anybody out there that has any questions from any different perspective of the industry to get in touch with you both. And, again, we appreciate you taking your time to come here and join us and, and educate us. Certainly. Thank you for the opportunity. Great. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, everybody. We appreciate you tuning in to this podcast. And as we mentioned um, earlier on, we're brought to you by Atlas Sound and Hypersign. And you can visit us and all the other podcasts at ravepubsradio.com. So go there and uh, listen to this podcast at www.ravepubsradio.com. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>